Hello, everyone. I'm Brendan. You should know me. We're going through uh, 1 Corinthians 12 today. Um, and while you'll find that in your Bibles, a Swiss tourist is traveling through Europe, traveling through Poland specifically. He uh, finds himself lost. He stops to ask two locals where exactly he needs to go. And so he pulls up beside uh, two local Poles and says, Guten Tag, mein Kameraden. Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Dead silence. No response. Backs up and tries again. Excusez-moi, parlez-vous français? Nothing. Palavare italiano? Nothing. Hable espanol? Nothing. Total silence. He drives off in complete frustration. The one Paul turns to the other and says, Maybe we should learn a foreign language. <laughs> now the one says, Why? He knows foreign didn't help him. The closest thing to a joke about speaking in tongues that I could put together. <laughs> but uh, I hope you found 1 Corinthians chapter 12 now. Uh, I'll read it and then I'll pray and then more seriously we'll get into God's word. Here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the whole shebang. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, the same God is at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to the other a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and still to another the interpretation of tongues. All these things are the work of the one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them each one just as he determines. Just as one body, though one has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by the one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of, body, the, parts of the body, every one of them, just where he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I do not need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, 
so that there should be no division in the body and so that its parts should have equal concern for one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and every one of you is part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Let me pray, and then we'll begin. Father God, we thank you again for the opportunity to get into your word. We ask that you bless us as we investigate it. We ask that you open up our hearts to your word and open up your word to our hearts. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Now today we're continuing our series on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. I believe last week Josh talked about chapter 11, about the me church mentality. I'm privileged to be exploring God's word with you on this week of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I spoke on chapter 11 at the evening service last week, so I had to investigate it thoroughly myself. And I was struck by how simple the message really is once you negotiate the sensational aspects. Now, 1 Corinthians 11, last week's, was, is a notorious chapter because it does not look like a chapter with a simple message. Because it's about head coverings and men with long hair and women with shaved heads and strange sensational stuff like this. And it's in this portion of Corinthians, as much as anywhere else in the Bible, that we can sometimes miss the forest for the trees. The forest, the greater thrust of the, of the, uh, the whole letter, in fact, is about church unity. It's about being accountable to one another. In the case of chapter 11, it's about restraining just a little bit of our freedom for the benefit of one another. So there can be harmony, so the church family can grow in love and fellowship without contention. Now, likewise, in chapter 12, well, chapter 12 is a little bit infamous as well because it's the spiritual gifts chapter. Whenever someone has to ask a question like, do miracles still happen? They have to swing by chapter 12. Whenever someone wants to talk about healing, chapter 12. Whenever a Baptist is having a cheerful discussion with a Pentecostal friend about whether or not everyone should be speaking in tongues, chapter 12. But I want to suggest to you this morning that the elements of this chapter about the spiritual gifts are merely the trees. And the forest, the greater theme of this chapter, is about living humbly and selflessly for one another. So let's step through this again one block at a time, beginning with verses 1 to 3. Paul says this, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagan, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, straight away, we are forced to pay attention. Paul says he doesn't want them to be uninformed regarding spiritual gifts. That suggests there was some misinformation floating around about the spiritual gifts. Paul is worried about them being led astray on that account. Now, what he really means by being led astray, we'll have to piece together a little bit later in the chapter. But 
For now, verse 3 gives us the big clue. That no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, imagine the Corinthian church for a moment. The pagan culture they have just come out of. They have their Greek pantheon of gods who they sacrifice to and appeal to for different things, for different favors, different boons. A priestess of Aphrodite would help you out if you needed some kind of advice or blessing of love. If your son was a gifted reader, you might sacrifice to Athena, hoping that she would encourage his wisdom. If you wanted revenge, then you'd make a vow to Nemesis. If you wanted victory in combat, then Nike was who you wanted to talk to. Nike's fallen a long way. Goddess of victory to peddler of basketball merchandise. But the point is that they had a spiritually diffuse culture. They had a diffuse spirituality. It was spread around in different places. They expected spiritual order in their lives to come from many directions and many places. And everyone lived that way. Many people with many devotions. But here comes Paul and he says that anyone who says Jesus be cursed is in defiance of the spirit. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This is not a, a spiritual litmus test. This is about allegiance. Because I know more than a couple of Mormon guys, good, good, uh, good lads generally speaking, who will very cheerfully tell you that Jesus is Lord, but they don't even really believe that the Holy Spirit is a personal being. And I'm willing to bet that there's more than a few saints, probably some in this room, who have, at some particularly painful or emotional point in their life, said their version of something like Jesus be cursed, while sulking and preparing to throw in the towel before God picked them up and turned them around, as he always does for those who love him. This is about the fact that everything that God does comes from the one place comes from the triune God. You do not go praying to the Holy Spirit for tongues and then to Jesus for healing and then the Father for prophecy, for example. You might remember Jesus once said, whoever is not with me is against me. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Here Paul takes this idea but recognizes that Jesus is part of the Godhead, part of the triune God. And so he says that anyone who says Jesus be cursed is not speaking by the Spirit of God. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. God, Lord, Spirit. All bound up together, all the singular source of the church's blessing. Then we check out verses 4 to 6. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them... And in every one, it is the same God at work. Spirit, Lord God. From a pagan world where many scattered individuals served many scattered individual gods, now to a better day in a church in which many individuals serve one God, one Lord, one Spirit. Now on to verses 7 to 11. Now to each one... The manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. 
to another gifts of healing by that one spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to another still the interpretation of tongues. All of these are the work of one and the same spirit. And he distributes them to each just as he determines. Now, I read this when I was younger, and I, as some people do, I got bamboozled by the high-octane spiritual content. And I had folks telling me I needed to find my spiritual gift, and I read the list, and I'm afraid I missed the point. And trying to be very practical about it, I thought, these are all pretty cool. I'm not sure what I'd do with tongues. I reckon healing and miracles are the way to go. Those are the big-ticket ones. I know I'll pray for the spiritual gift of faith, and then once I've got spiritual gift of faith, then I'll knock off all the others very easily. My prayers will be turbocharged by that gift of faith. No sweat. Just seem more efficient that way. Now, obviously, the point is not a checklist of superpowers or spiritual goalposts. In fact, the most important part of the spiritual gift is not the gift as much as the spirit. Look at the way that leans into it as he teaches. Let me run over those verses again quickly. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The one there is given through the Spirit, a message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. And these are the works of one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. He fears that the Corinthians will be led into something like that diffuse idolatry that they came out of. So he reminds the gifted Corinthians that whatever they are empowered to do, however they have been blessed, it is the one spirit to whom they owe the blessing. And it is given to them, verse 7, for the common good. You see, we're not just many individuals serving one God, in fact. We have a corporate identity. We are one church serving one God. And Paul says as much in the following verses, 12 through 14. Just as a body, though one, has many parts... But all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. If we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink, even so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So like a human body, we are individual pieces with individual gifts and different things to contribute to the whole, but we are one body of God's people. And so if this church is just a place that you sometimes visit, will come along sometimes, but it's not quite a second home where you expect to see your extended family, well, you're missing out. And either we've done a terrible job welcoming you or you felt too detached to put down roots here. But both of these problems can be solved by hanging around after the service and meeting some brothers and sisters who serve the Lord Jesus as one. On to verses 15 through 20. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, 
it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Many parts, but one body. Do you see what I mean when I say this chapter, despite all its spiritual gift stuff, is really about loving one another and about living selflessly for one another? Carrying on in verses 21 through 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, sometimes we have a particular gear that we slip into when we read scripture that doesn't quite understand things like tooth humor. But Paul offers a pretty ridiculous image here, and I think we expect the early churches to be laughing when they heard it read. He's talking about body parts talking to one another and trying to run away. Ever fell asleep on your arm and woke up unable to feel it? Now imagine waking up and finding not only that you could not feel your arm, but it wasn't there anymore, not in a gruesome way, just maybe at the foot of the bed by itself, packing a little suitcase putting on a little hat and coat as it prepares to go. Lefty, where are you going? I'm out of here. I resign. You're holding me back. I'm going to Broadway. I'll be in pictures. You'll see. It's deliberately... It's a comic image because the idea that a body would revolt against itself, parts would be at war, is a joke. It cannot be taken seriously. And we are the body of Christ that we'd be divided amongst ourselves, that any of us could just try to go it alone, is a joke. It's absurd. And on a broad scale, the whole invisible church, everyone who confesses Jesus to be Lord and Savior is part of that body of Christ. But what Paul is conveying here is to the church, to the Corinthian church. And he's not saying that you, the Corinthian church, are a small part of the greater body of the church. He's saying that you, the individual church, are the body of Christ. Your local church community constitutes the Savior's local physical presence. In this case, the Bank District Baptist Church is the body of Christ because we are committed to the same spirit as one unit, as one people in his name. Now, I have a lot of non-Christian friends, and from time to time, one will go through a crisis in their life. A relationship will come apart, or they'll be out of a job and not sure if they'll be able to have somewhere to stay, or some other pressing issue like that. And the instinct of myself, and, and usually my, particularly my Christian friends, is, is always to help out in any way possible. You dig deep, you do whatever you can. 
And things always seem to turn out all right in the end. And more than once, I find that my, my poor friend in that scenario who doesn't know Christ is so humbled and relieved because if their small circle of friends did not step up at that moment of crisis, then they would have hit the ground. And their grip on the strange and whirling circumstances of life would loosen or fall away altogether. They hit a crisis point. And the crisis always seems near enough to them that the deliverance seems miraculous or exceptional. And I agonize over friends like that because they just don't know what I know. They don't know the security and peace that comes with being part of a loving church family. I'm not sure that everyone here necessarily knows themselves the security and peace that comes with being part of a loving church family, but it's available for you right here at the low cost of a bit of your time, a bit of your investment of yourself. And if you love this church, it will love you back. I suspect I may be an abnormally laid-back person, but I know for a fact that if my car, for example, fell apart, that I have brothers and sisters here who would lend me theirs, no questions asked. I know this because it has happened to me. I know that if I was ever so financially strained that I had to choose between paying rent or buying groceries, that there are brothers and sisters here who would help me out immediately. No questions asked. And I know that because it's happened to me. Now, no church gets everything right, and we have our share of rough edges, I'm sure. I don't usually encounter them. Lucky me. But I've personally experienced the extraordinary generosity and the Christ-like selflessness from the individuals who make up the body of our church. And I cherish every chance I get to be part of this body because I recognize that this kind of fellowship and brotherly love is a supernatural gift from God. It comes about when individuals who are vulnerable and insufficient and imperfect are drawn to the grace and the power of the living God, saved by his crucified son and empowered with the gifting of the Holy Spirit. And then they spend their lives in obedience to the simple commands to love God and love one another. God is building something out of his people here. Find out what part you are meant to be and then be it and you will not regret it. Verses 27 to 31. Now you are the body of the church. Rather, you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Well, danced around it for a while. Let's shoot the elephant in the room now. What's the deal with the miracles and the healings and the prophecy and the supernatural gifts described here? Do we have them? Should we? Is there something wrong if we don't? Well, that's a pretty big theological question. I know that I have a friend or two who can speak tongues. I've 
experience with what I'd call supernatural healing. I've known folks who have experienced what I'd call prophecy from God. So do these things still occur today? I think so. But I don't have any of these supernatural gifts myself. And the vast, vast, vast majority of Christians for the last 1,800 years did not experience things like this regularly. And God has not stopped working for a second, even if he's chosen to dial back on the miracles. The key was really back in verse 11, that all are the work of one and the same spirit, and he distributes to them each one just as he determines. The Holy Spirit dispenses these gifts as he determines. If you feel particularly drawn towards a particular gifting, pray for it. If God enables you in that way, then praise God. But remember to listen as well. If you've found that God's plans for your life typically match up with your own, then watch out because he's not done yet. But anyway, again, this is more about the unity of the church and unity of the body of God's people than about the gifts themselves. But Paul does offer a kind of a hierarchy of gifts here from greater to lesser. Some, what his meanings are, are more obvious than others. Now, apostle is first, the greatest in this list. And as far as Paul is concerned, apostles are people whom Jesus personally dispatched into the world. Paul begins just about all his letters stating his station as an apostle to invoke his authority to teach. Now, in several weeks, when we break into 2 Corinthians, we'll see Paul get particularly narky about non-apostles who try to act like they have the authority of true apostles. In short, we are probably now fresh out of apostles, and we shouldn't expect to get new ones. The distinct ministry of an apostle is the authority to teach new things and interpret the old ones into them. What the modern church has, what we have instead of the apostles, are the scriptures. We have the New Testament itself being heavily invested with the teachings of the apostles, of Peter and Paul and John. And we regard their teachings as recorded in Scripture, as God's inspired word. So if you think that God has given you the gift of being an apostle, I would love to have a discussion with you. Maybe choose a different word for it. I'd hate for Paul to take a bite out of you when you enter the kingdom. <laughs> Prophets are distinct from apostles. Prophets receive a more limited insight from God. Apostles were those handpicked and trained by Christ himself. Prophets have and always have been through scripture those who speak for God to his people. Now the other gifts, teaching, miracles, healing, pretty self-explanatory. The helping, the guidance, and finally tongues. Now we get a kind of an order from most valuable here as a tool for the common good of the body of the church. That which is Less common good value and more of a personal gift. Tongues, a language which one can speak to God in that is maybe apart from the ones they already know. Paul does not want people's zeal to serve the body, however, to be dampened by his categorizing and his, his careful uh, restraining uh, of people on this spiritual gifts issue. So he runs through them again with these rhetorical questions. Now, is everyone an apostle? Is everyone a prophet? And so on. Obviously saying that, is everyone this kind of gift? No. We are all different parts 
but we all constitute the one body. Remember, remember that Paul's thrust for this whole chapter is about the many individuals with individual gifts being woven together by one loyalty to one God into one body of his people. Now, however God has gifted you, use that gift for the common good of the church. These gifts that are listed are not the only gifts that God gives. Some of the spiritual gifts here are miraculous, but mostly our Lord delights in using his people to do his work. That's why he saved us. So look for a need the church has and see if you have a gift to fill it. Or look for a gift that you have and see if the church has needs for it. And Paul says to eagerly desire the greater gifts. Naturally, the greater your gifts, the better equipped you are to love your church, to love your brothers and sisters. And with our Christ-commanded love for one another as a guide, we strive to discover and expand our gifting. And love really is the driving force here. The chapter ends with this little teaser, the final verse, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. That's a lead into chapter 13, the famous chapter 13 love discourse. If I can speak the tongues of men and angels but not have not love, I'm a clanging cymbal or noisy gong. Next week we'll dive into chapter 13 and read it in light of Paul's words that we've read here about gifting and about the body of God's people. But for now, we can see the apostles' words pretty clearly. When a believer commits themselves to be part of of the body of God's people, when they've committed themselves to following the Lord, being part of that body is more than just attending and tithing. Each of us is gifted by God for the purpose of extending his kingdom through evangelism and also building up the body of his people through fellowship and by gifting and our common devotion to the Son of God who died and rose to make us one. Let's pray together. Father God, we offer up our lives, our church, our gifts to your will and to your design. We belong to your son who purchased us by his blood and in accordance with his command. As our Lord, we strive to love one another in a way that the world will recognize as us belonging to him. Help us to be selfless when called upon, restless when tempted to be obscure, fearless when confronted with our own crises, and assured in the security of this body of your people. And we ask that to each of us, each of us that feels we have little or nothing to offer, that you reveal the way you intend us to serve your people, in your kingdom. And we ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.